0: Welcome to ASD Engage, a podcast for families of children who are currently waiting for an autism spectrum disorder or ASD assessment. I'm Dr. Heidi Kiefer, a clinical child and adolescent psychologist. I'm Maureen Mosley, a psychometrist. And I'm Sean Brumby, also a psychometrist.
1: We work on teams that assess children for ASD at Holland Bloorview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital. Each episode, we will present a topic that reflects concerns brought forward by families we work with. You'll hear information regarding the assessment process and insights and information from a variety of specialists. And more importantly, we'll talk directly to families who share some of their personal stories with us in an effort to help guide you through the assessment process.
0: Welcome to the ASD Engage podcast. In our previous episodes, we've been talking about several topics that people often associate with ASD, including sensory-seeking behaviors and versions, feeding and eating difficulties, and sleeping problems. In this episode, we focus on a topic or issue that is less focused on, that of physical activity. We're joined today by Patrick Jakira, Patrick completed his doctoral research at Holland Bloorview, and his research examines how to enhance the mental and physical health, along with participation and inclusion among individuals with autism through physical activity participation. In the community, Patrick is the founder and former director of two community recreation programs for people with autism, and his community involvement has been recognized by the University of Toronto Awards of Excellence. So Patrick, welcome to the podcast and thanks so much for making uh, the time to join us for this episode.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: No problem. Um, So Patrick, you've been involved in some fascinating research and intervention related to physical activity for children and youth on the spectrum, uh, which we're definitely going to get into in this episode. But first of all, how did you initially become interested in and get involved with the ASD population?
2: It goes back several years, Uh, you would never imagine as a 16-year-old that you would start your career thinking about what would pique your interest, and I used to work at an overnight camp, and when we had lots of children with undiagnosed behavioral issues um, who would come to our camp and were, quote-unquote, challenging kids for lack of better terminology at the time, Um, but it turned out that some of the kids that we had also had autism spectrum disorder, and this was about 15 years ago where... Autism research was still kind of building in its infancy and I was just so interested in working with one of the young boys because everyone labeled him as a challenging kid and no one understood him and because he was sitting on his own all the time and to me I was there was more to that story that I didn't always understand and there was one day we were just sitting out in the field and he was just gazing at the clouds and I remember just going and laying down beside him and just trying to understand his daily life and from that point on after figuring out a bit more about his life and the diagnostic situation that's what really started to pique my interest um to then start working with people with autism so i then worked as a one-on-one support worker um doing mainly recreational based things in the summer outside of the summer so think about summer camp thinking about skating and baseball and then I was able to turn that somehow into a job. So that's probably the most rewarding part of this process is kind of taking my interests um, in both physical activity and health and autism spectrum disorder and then doing a PhD in that area.
0: Yeah. And so true how 15 years ago, like a lot has happened, right, since that time. And especially in our understanding of ASD. So um, subsequently you completed your undergrad degree and then got into graduate studies as you mentioned with a period of time spent in connection to Holland Bloorview. So can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah so my master's was not autism related um, but my PhD at Holland Bloorview was. So at Holland Bloorview had the chance to first we ran a provincial-wide survey to look at the rates and habits and patterns of kids with autism and the physical activity participation. And to date, no one's done that in Canada, and we were the first ones, which is both kind of exciting and also, in a way, not surprising that we found that the rates were much lower than their age-related peers. And that is pretty consistent with what we see around the world, that kids and youth, and even adults with autism are less likely to be active than their age-related peers. So that was kind of part one of the study. Mm And then part two is what I say is the best part of my job. I got to work with kids, and we got to create videos and have interviews together um, throughout the process. So we spent about 20 hours with each participant. And in 20 hours, you get to really get to know someone pretty good. I can imagine, And if yeah. they don't like you, then that's a different story. But uh, in general, the youth who participated created a digital story, which is similar to a YouTube video. And in that digital story, they talked about what are some of the things that draw them into physical activity? What are some of those things that maybe push them away what are some of the things that they like or don't like? And what are some of the things that we can do better um, in the field in terms of research, in terms of teaching in schools, in terms of clinical practice on how to engage um, children and youth with autism in physical activity? So we did both the digital stories and the interviews. We got to hang out for a while. And this is, again, like my favorite part of my job is like to hang out with kids and do research and, and learn from them more than anything. Um, throughout that PhD, I learned much more um, from the participants in the families than, than you can learn in a textbook, honestly, just by spending time with people and families. I mean, that's much more enlightening than just reading um, basic information that you get.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like such an interesting study, too, the way you did it in terms of having like those digital stories and really involving the kids and youth themselves.
2: Yeah, and it turned out we were really hesitant. No one's done digital storytelling with people with autism at that time, especially physical activity. So I was really hesitant, um, but at the same time, it turned out to be so rewarding. And one of the things that we don't focus on sometimes is the strengths of kids with autism. Mm -hmm. And one of my takeaways and my goals of using digital stories is if I can get a child to maybe be interested in digital videos or to learn how to video edit or to participate, then that was one of my takeaways that I wanted the youth to have. Um, And then secondly, some of the youth were so engaged that we had three sessions. Some youth were done in the first Two sessions, and then the third session, I had to figure out what it was going to do for them just to keep them busy. Um, but to see the progress of some of the participants who were really apprehensive, I remember I was so nervous, um, quote unquote. We had a runner, so to speak, and I remember the very first day he came into the this, this, the session and he had his jacket on. He's sitting by the door, and here I'm thinking, panicking, being like, he's going to run. Mm. And then by the end of it, he was crying because he didn't want to leave that social interaction that we had as a group for three weeks, right? So it was more than just doing research and it's more than just you know creating a story. It was really building on strengths, providing an opportunity that they might not otherwise get sometimes, and at the same time, rewarding them for their contributions. And I think that was the most valuable aspect. And to this day, sometimes I'll get an email from... A participant's like, hey, what's up? What's going on? <laughs> and so, to have that follow up three years later because we did it in twenty seventeen, yeah. is valuable. And the connections you make with families and and children with autism are real genuine and I think that's also an important part that doesn't always get translated in research.
0: Yeah, yeah, that sounds amazing. Also sounds like the seeds for a follow-up study too. (laughs) Yeah,
2: potentially one day.
0: Um, So Patrick, can you tell us some of the key points of what is generally known about the physical activity of children and youth with ASD?
2: So it's an area that's growing. Um, About 10 years ago, no one was talking about it. No one really thought that this was important for whatever reason. And then there was like a landmark study in early 2010 that said that people with autism are less likely to be active, especially children and youth. And the peak decline age is between 12 and 14. So as kids are aging, kind of that transition age into into youth, um, that's when we see the biggest drop off. And so one of the biggest questions was like, why is this happening? One, why aren't they active? And two, why is the drop off there? And so some of the Things that get lost in that is potentially the importance of being physically active, right? So we know that being active for kids generally and for kids with autism specifically, you know, there are improvements sometimes in social communication skills, in creating structure, routine, creating a pattern and positive habits, creating a positive sense of self when it works well. But also there's health benefits to it, right? So we have increases in kind of cardiovascular health, decreased chance of diabetes. Then we also have the social components. And a lot of parents that I've talked to uh, in a separate study where we interviewed parents on what it's like to have a kid active or not, and, and the parents say the social piece is the number one driving force for parents to put them into activities. So we have all these benefits, but yet our kids are not participating. And so to me, the question is always like, okay, wh- why or why not? What is happening? What is going wrong? And so there's a few different pieces that are in this situation that are somewhat complicated. Um, so for some kids, you have kind of motor um, decrements so challenges with running hopping jumping that might be impacting kids both in the community and in the school-based setting Um, because if their coaches or instructors are leading an activity and they're not keeping up in a way that is conducive to their ability we know that generally speaking someone is going to probably drop out for that reason then we have the sensory Piece. And I know we just had Moira Penna a few weeks ago talking about all the sensory information processing this really aligns nicely uh, because physical activity is so stimulating and it can be overly stimulating for some people, right? You have sweat, you have people potentially touching you, you have noise, you have a game with rules and structure and all those pieces when you put them together, again, if in not the right environment can be overwhelming and can contribute to either sensory overload or a meltdown and a challenge. Then we have the kind of behavioral aspects of physical activity that can be challenging, right? So we might have a kid who has a hard time following rules or instructions or structure if it's not there. And so you put all that together and it makes it a lot more complicated for a child um, with autism to participate if those right supports and routines are not in place. Then you factor in all the challenges parents have sometimes with a child with autism. So... Especially in the early years in my PhD, we found that parents weren't necessarily not putting their kids to be physically active on purpose. Mm-hmm. It's because they're chasing a hundred other things in their day, getting their kid out the door to school, getting their kid back home from school, then potentially having therapy appointments, then trying to engage in other sorts of arts and base activities, or sometimes just getting through the day. and. As much as people sometimes think, well, like, we got to do more for parents, and the parents aren't doing enough. I found in my research that actually it's the opposite. The Parents are so overwhelmed and burdened and stressed that to throw another thing at them in terms of physical activity and just say they should do it and blaming them I don't think is responsible. So you put the biological things together, you put the sensory things, the behavioral things, and the social components, and again, in the right context, it works. And for some, it doesn't work. And so it is complicated, but from some of the work we're trying to do now, we're trying to find ways that work for parents and kids specifically on how to engage their activity.
0: Yeah, I think that's so important, especially that last point with respect to parents, because we have a social work episode coming up where um, the social workers talk about kind of post-diagnosis meeting with the families and helping parents decide what are their priorities, because it is almost impossible to try to do everything that you want or you feel needs to be done. So um, sometimes maybe physical activity gets kind of put down further on that list, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely, and that's not a knock on the parents at all. In fact, I'm a parent supporter from the beginning till the end. I think, you know, sometimes it, the parents fall through the cracks with our kids in the healthcare system, and that's not a fault of the parents necessarily. But our goal is to try and support them, um, and I think it's irresponsible to throw more things at parents without providing the adequate supports. Right. So it's one thing to say yes, kids should be more active, but if there aren't pathways that support activity both in schools or in the community or on the parents own time then i don't think necessarily that it's going to work and like you said you know parents have so much stuff to do and if it's on lower lower end of the kind of spectrum of priority then and that's okay we don't take that personally but um our research is showing that it has a lot of benefits um, like we've talked about especially for social communication and behaviors which in the lab have shown promising results. We're still trying to figure out how that will translate into the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have seen kind of increases in communication skills and in reading skills and in behavior and management of emotions and skills. So again, it's exciting that we have all this lab stuff. And now the question for parents always is, so what do I do with this? What are you, How are you going to put this into my life? And so I said, well, you got to wait. We're trying to figure that out still, <laughs> right? Um, but it's, it's, a long, it's a long-winded process, both the research aspect and, again, trying to implement into into parents lives
0: yeah and I think you've kind of touched on this a bit so you mentioned that those on the spectrum have been found to be underactive um, and that's across the globe so it's kind of like a universal issue Um, is there a sense of uh, like why that might be the case you were alluding to it with um, several reasons and are there some ways in which maybe the research oversimplifies the issue
2: yeah absolutely I think part of the things that I've learned from my PhD and working with parents throughout, you know, 15 years, being kind of in the field when I was a little teenager to now doing research and work in the field is, I think the social components of, of activity are really tough for our kids. And historically, physical activity, physical education and sport are pretty rigid. Mm-hmm. So they have a model that we want to fit people into this mold, right? So it's like kids are supposed to be able to be quiet and focus and listen and do the skill and run and jump and throw and it's very top-down, right? So the teacher's the expert, and the child just is supposed to automatically pick up on these things. And if we look at outside of kids with autism, a lot of kids actually also don't fit that mold very well. Mm-hmm. And that mold comes from the 1920s and the military <laughs> days of you know very kind of militaristic instruction. And part of the, the global focus is to try and move away from that sort of top-down um, coaching piece. And what I always say is like good teaching practice for all kids benefits – Good teaching practice for kids with autism as well right so if we can find ways of teaching and instruction and games then if that works for kids with autism it will work for all kids really well so to just assume that you can put a kid in a class or an activity and just say based on these rules that this is how we do it without thinking through what are the consequences or how do we modify or how do we adapt or how do we build a game that takes all these things at the outset together that actually makes it successful for the child with autism then that, I think, is a way forward. And again, that, that social piece and the expectations and pressures for parents to try and engage and fit them into that mold, I mean, it doesn't work. And if we think about it, someone usually asks me, like, hey, I want to run a marathon. I'm like, well, the first thing you're going to do is not run the marathon because you can't run 42 <laughs> kilometers without training, right? So if we put a child with autism in a social setting, that's physical. That has all those components that we talked about, the sensory pieces, the behavioral pieces. And we don't provide the adequate support. I mean, we're automatically setting them up for failure.
1: Right.
2: right? And so my kind of motto is to try and set up kids for success. And the way we could do that, in my view, is to, one, either modify the rules and games and the way we teach activity, or two, develop games that keep their activities and their abilities in mind from the outset, right? So rather than trying to fit them into the mold, we want the mold to actually represent them, which I know is what Holland Bloorview is trying to do in terms of their clinical approach. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that that somewhat will translate to physical activity, but we're not there yet.
0: Yeah, well, it makes me think. I know. I mean, in terms of school, there's uh, there's been a big shift in terms of like really accommodating kids and modifying, and even like um, thinking about kids who might be overactive or have periods of inattention. Right there's there's lots of things that you can incorporate into the classroom environment, and also helping teachers to understand like, oh, when when this child is fidgeting or doing something else, they're still actually listening. And when you're when you're putting kind of the um, onus on them to sit and be quiet then their attention gets focused on sit and be quiet and they can't also at the same time be learning what you're you're expecting them to learn right but that's the school environment and i'm sure it's a little bit harder to get um kind of like professionals from different kind of like organized sports and physical activities to also kind of get that kind of understanding and awareness too
2: Absolutely. And so there's a great organization in British Columbia called the Canucks Autism Network. Um, They're sponsored by the Vancouver Canucks. There's a family connection there. And they've been real pioneers in Canada trying to increase awareness among coaches. They've run free workshops. They were in Toronto two summers ago. They're also running free workshops for parents. There's tons of resources. So I encourage parents listening, if you want to check out the Canucks Autism Network, um, there's a tips page for parents. And there's strategies, but also um, ways to engage your child in activity even simple things as how do we kind of look for programs Um, and so that's a great place to start and the second piece is again the the coaching and the engagement piece we have teachers who I generally will always say want to do well for the kids um, but when we're still using things developed by the teaching practice of getting a child to sit down and be quiet in in his chair or in their chair and our expectations that that they're going to learn while we're kind of talking at them I mean we know that doesn't work for most kids let alone a child on the spectrum so I think it's For lack of better, we're trying to modify our teaching practices and modernizing it uh, to reflect your kids. And and again, we know that 20 minutes of activity even throughout the day for the parents who remember the Ontario um, Education Board put in the daily physical activity program years ago. And that kind of has fallen off the radar. And that was based on research saying that if you give kids 20 minutes um, throughout the day in classroom, that stimulates their kind of the thinking and their brain, um, but also gives them a kind of a release and that has kind of fallen out by the wayside
1: yeah.
2: um, all these years I think it's happened in 2005 I mean that just kind of no one talks about it anymore right so yeah trying to bring movement back is my motto um, <laughs> and I think sometimes we overcomplicate things both in school and outside of school sometimes movement could be like like we just talked about getting the child to stand up and move and fidget and come back right to have them sit there the entire time and focus I, I don't think it's realistic for most adults <laughs> let alone children so I think it's trying to reimagine and reframe what our expectations are and then tailoring that um, to the kids' needs and abilities.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing that resource too. Um, When we talked before this interview, you had mentioned that ASD kids often go through a revolving door of physical activities. Can you speak about what you meant by that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those things that we're not proud of. (laughs) Um, Whenever there's a revolving door, it's not usually a good thing. Uh, And it's similar to what we see in other programs that kids with on the spectrum will, will engage in. So lots of kids will kind of maybe start an activity and within the first week or two, they drop out. And in my research, especially that we did working with kids at the digital stories and the interviews, I think 8 out of the 10 participants were, were part of that revolving door. They would try and do something new and then something would come up. Either the instructor wasn't able to adapt or they didn't have the resources There's a few participants who were kicked out of programs um, because the options were either find a support worker or you can't participate. And this is happening, like, you know, only a few years ago. And so.
0: And the onus is on the parents. It was
2: on the parents. Yeah.
0: Right. And
2: one, you know, that families might not have the resources to find a personal support worker or two for the families who can participate and have a parent or a sibling or a volunteer. I mean, that's another kind of barrier that we put up for kids to be active right? And so kids often stop and start. And what I noticed in our research was that kids didn't really have any continuous physical activity throughout their childhood years and even to their teenage years. And one of the things that we've learned in generally among kids is kids who are active lifelong generally have some sort of continuity throughout their life. So they might start, let's say, soccer when they're kids, but then throughout their adolescence and adulthood they pick up new activities, but generally they're active. The kids who have the stop and starts don't have a really a time to pick up a period of interest or a peak in sort of an activity; those are the kids who are falling off by the wayside. And so the revolving door is problematic because, as much as we are trying to get kids and put them into the mold, the mold isn't working. Mm-hmm. When we have barriers and policies that say, "Well, if you don't have a support worker because your needs don't fit this mold, you can't participate," right? Yeah. And so again, I think it's trying to rethink how we support kids with autism on this and in physical activity, but also finding. And retuning the mold that fits their needs and abilities and strengths uh, more than anything
0: I expect to, especially when it's affecting so many kids out of eight out of ten is what you mentioned before it's a lot
2: yeah and it was shocking to even hear that like again we didn't capture that in the surveys because the surveys can only tell you so much um, yeah. but it was really an eye-opener to think about you know why is this happening and then there's all those other things that are happening in the context right and so one of the big findings and we just published actually a paper a few weeks ago in the journal autism and one of the hardest things that i had to work with through my phds listening to the stories about bullying um, bullying was pretty rampant in physical education class pretty common in all classes but physical physical education just was for some reason a space in place for kids with autism in my study were being really bullied big time and Part of it, they said, it was because the teacher isn't always around, so if they're in a change room, well, there's no oversight and bullying was happening there. We're talking about physical bullying, sometimes pushing, shoving, tripping, kind of towel snapping, um, but then also kind of verbal bullying, such as, you know, being called all kinds of different names. Um, and there's also the social bullying piece, where some kids, you know, who wanted to participate were told by the more dominant students, no, you can't. And they were substituted out by a peer not a teacher by a peer and said you're not participating today because we want to win the game right Mm. so that's another factor that isn't really being talked about in the literature and to to me it was one hard to to deal with you know these stories and these are just more than stories right these are people's lives that when we wonder why kids aren't being inactive it's like well when we set up kids for failure and this is happening i mean if you or i were being bullied in this setting we probably won't come back in fact we won't come back period Yeah. Right. And so we can't blame these kids for not wanting to be active for, or you know, there's two participants who used the word hate and they learned to hate activity. Right? And so it's not this ingrained thing that they grow up with that they hate it. No, like it was a socially learned kind of behavior that became ingrained in them that they just hated being active
0: yeah and i mean that's really no different from an adult too like if i if i hate the idea of running it's not going to be something that i'm really making time for or feel motivated to do because there's just not an enjoyable component to it
2: yeah and if it's painful there's no way we're going to do it right and so again when we we try to overcomplicate things sometimes for kids to be either engaged in some sort of activity sometimes you got to step back and look at what are some of these issues that are happening? And bullying is one of those that, again, we haven't talked about in the literature. Mm-hmm. There's been a large focus on kind of the behavioral challenges, the sensory issues, the biological kind of components with the motor movement issues, right? So kids who might have issues with running, jumping, throwing, hopping. Um, and also liter- literature saying that, you know, kids are just naturally inactive and are lazy. And I mm-hmm. keep saying, well, I don't think that's the case. I think we we're trivializing it a bit too much in research. And when we step out into the field and we spend enough time with kids, you realize how much more complicated it is and it's just an esoteric exercise just to say that they're inactive but getting into the field is where you kind of figure out those nitty-gritties of of actually what's happening
0: yeah and i think this idea of bullying too and what what's being found out about bullying really takes us back to the idea of like preparing and educating those who are coaching and organizing those physical activities too because they're providing the environment and modeling certain behaviors then then either you know make bullying, you know, enable bullying, right? Or let it continue and with this message that, you know, it is okay because maybe competition is number one versus inclusivity of all people.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and again, I don't think teachers do it deliberately or maliciously. It's just like you put 30 kids in a room, you put them in a confined space being a gym. Oftentimes, especially in school and elementary school, teachers don't necessarily have specialized training in physical education Um, And then some of them might have kind of special physical education teachers, but even then, that doesn't always translate to necessarily think about the inclusivity piece and the competition. And maybe I'm preaching to the choir, but, you know, the competition piece, again, comes back from the World War days and, you know, trying to instill a particular type of person to go out and combat. It's like, well, that's not our goal anymore. And if we want to develop lifelong learners in school, we need to do the same thing for physical activity. Right, the same way we have literacy and numeracy and skills. You know, there's a concept called physical literacy where we're trying to teach kids to be confident move, like movers, but also develop that joy and passion and enjoyment, which, again, is missing um, in what we talk about for the purpose. The first thing people often talk about being active is, oh, I want to lose weight or I want to develop this muscle bo- or body type. It's like, well, no, like, <laughs> we should also focus on the enjoyment piece, which has also been kind of fallen off to the wayside.
0: Yeah, definitely. So in, in my personal experience with doing ASD assessments with the younger children, um, parents have often tried to get their kids to participate in organized group sports or physical activities and hasn't gone well like we were talking about before. Um, can there be a difference between group and individual physical activities with children and youth with ASD in terms of like just interest level and, and motivation?
2: Absolutely, and we're seeing a trend in terms of When the group activities work well they work really well and so with the right environment either with the teachers or the coaches and the supports in place if we set up kids for success they're more likely to participate and enjoy it and be successful but when we have the flip side of that argument in group settings right where there's the bullying going on or if the activities don't take into account their needs so if there's a sensory sort of sensitivity or a sensory kind of focus that needs to be figured out or if there's the rules don't fit in with what they're understanding, then those behavioral components of being active actually, you know, if a kid acts out, it's not because they're trying to act out for the sake of being a bad kid, you know, as Moira talked about, it's it's a form of communication and, and sometimes it gets misinterpreted. Um, but the group setting can be overwhelming if those supports in that environment isn't there. And to assume that any child will just flourish by the sake of throwing them into the same mold all the time. Well, I mean, I think it's a little irresponsible, let alone add some of the strengths and challenges of having autism. So we've seen that the group activities don't always work well. Mm -hmm. um, And we've seen, though, more success in the individual-based activities. So if we think about yoga, if we think about taekwondo, if we think about Pilates, um, the martial arts really have been, for what I've seen anecdotally through my experience, the biggest kind of contributor in success. Some kids love swimming. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is about swimming. <laughs> um, either Kids with autism either love swimming or hate swimming. Um, but for those who love it, I think the watery and the, and the sensory piece of being in the water, unless it's cold, <laughs> that's a problem.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, but the water can be really soothing and calming. And we did have one participant talk about you know, the ability of being in the water and feeling the water just going over his skin and through his hair being soothing and relaxing. And after a long day at school or stress or just the every single day realities of waking up, going to school, having so much structure and routine that swimming for him was an outlet to just let go and be himself and not worry about all the other kind of things that come with just living everyday life. And so, The individual activities have been more successful. Um, That doesn't mean necessarily that we should give up on on the group ones. I think there is still a need to have that because the social component is there more broadly. Uh, But generally speaking, martial arts have been a great way for kids to be active in terms of, you know, there's the physical activity piece, but there's also some of the emotional regulation piece through the breathing and through some of the movements. And so we've seen a big success through the martial
0: arts. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Throughout a lot of the other topics that we've had on th- in these episodes, the idea of time comes up—that things take time, right—and especially um, with children and youth with ASD, sometimes you know when when there are novel situations, right, um, uh, it can bring up stress and anxiety in trying new things, um, and so sometimes it's really important to to convey the message that you know, don't quit right away, give it some time, right? And also, I think about um, you bring up a lot of sensory things, and we're going to follow up by asking about that. Um, but there's a lot of detective work too, in sort of figuring out like, what is beneficial in terms of the environment or what's going on at, um, in the experience for the kids and youth um, in various situations, and what might be aversive to them, right? And how to accommodate that. Right, so the time is also a big factor.
2: <laughs> it's a huge factor, and and sometimes, unfortunately, kids learn through trial by experiment. Yeah. And by learn, I mean they figure out what they like and don't like, and that's not necessarily the model that we want to use all the time, but at the same time, we don't know what someone likes or doesn't like unless we do it. And it is hard to see your kid struggling, and so by all means, yeah, if we see a kid struggling, of course, we don't want to put them into that environment so they can fail again. But the other piece is some kids who were in our studies and have talked about you know it took a lot of trial and error we tried probably like 30 different activities For one kid i remember saying it was around 32 activities and that's a
0: lot of persistence
2: (laughs) persistence and eventually he found boxing and that was his outlet and there was again the social and emotional component of yes it's an individual activity and he was able to focus on his individual things but there's also some group stuff some interaction and he said like The punching bag was this his release he's like i was just so tired of like life being too routine and we love routine for our kids but sometimes our kids have also talked about we want to get away from routine and physical activity is one of those pieces that gives some time away from that structure and routine which in an environment where they're set up for success can work well Um, but the time piece is certainly a challenge where to get a kid to be active, sometimes we need to invest the time before an activity. So mm-hmm. we talk about front-loading activities, yeah. right? So if we know a child's going swimming. You know, some things that we've done with families is I've suggested, you know, watch a video of what it's like to go swimming. What does a swimming lesson look like? Why don't we talk about the process and create a video about, okay, you're going to come to Holland View. you're going to go to the change room, you're going to put on your bathing suit, you're going to wait at the door, someone's going to meet you, then you're going to have... Someone meets meet you at the door and take you into the water. And so having that process is sounds really tedious and really long. But if we can spend even a few weeks before the activity starts to explain one step at a time each week, then that sets up our child for success, to be able to participate. So then when they come to the environment that's new and stressful and anxiety-provoking because they don't know what's going to happen, they don't know the people. I mean, we're, They have another tool in their tool belt to say, well, actually, I kind of know what's going to happen. I can try and predict this. And this might be more successful, right? So if we can front load activities, whether it's writing out the activities and the process of what's going to happen or showing a video, I think that's another piece that we can add to the puzzle. So I had one child who loves surfing and luckily they're in Vancouver, they live in Tofino. (laughs) They probably
0: was in Toronto, yeah. they They were able to leave
2: Toronto. And I remember talking to his mom and she said like they went through the process of even watching a video of how to put on a wetsuit. Because, again, that wetsuit's so tight, and that sensory piece can be annoying and stressful. But they watch the video of putting on the wetsuit and going to, taking pictures of where they're going to meet the instructor and getting a surfboard and then meeting the instructor and then walking to, to the ocean and then getting on the board. And all those pieces, again, sound like a lot. But when we break them down that way, there's a chance that the kid is going to be able to pick that up and when they come to the environment, they'll be able to kind of put those pieces together rather than just throwing them into that environment and assuming that they'll do well. Some kids might, probably won't. Um, So then, again, it comes back to us to try and facilitate that learning as much as we can.
0: Those are great tips, yeah. And I guess also, too, then, um, the idea of parents also probably talking to coaches and organizers ahead of time, right, to giving them information about their child as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a huge resource. I know it's somewhat touchy for parents. It's like, I don't want to yeah. single my kid out. I don't want them to judge my kid or treat my kid any differently based on their diagnosis. And I fully appreciate and respect that. The flip side, though, it also comes at the cost of, okay, if my instructor knows that this is what they might need or these are the supports and accommodations, then that does increase their chances to be successful in that activity, right? So I, oftentimes the parents ask, what should I do? I said, honestly, do what you're most comfortable with. And if, if you're okay and... You know, I've really seen the wide range of parents of some of them who are very, you know, pro-autism label and are able to go and and use that in a way that's supportive. And they'll go and talk to everyone about it. And there's other people who are a bit more apprehensive, and that's okay. um, But it's finding out what you're comfortable with and working within those somewhat confines um, to then figure out how you can support your child. Oftentimes, for someone who doesn't know your child, the more you can give them in terms of supports, strategies what to look for what sort of triggers might be there that provides the coach or the instructor a bit more um, to know how they can fit them in Um, but again that comes back down to individual preferences and thinking about the whole environment as itself Mm -hmm. because the child is just one piece right it's the it's the coaches it's the teaching it's the activity right and so Again, that's a resource. Um, it doesn't have to be the only resource, though.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, so getting to the sensory aspect of sports and physical activity. So you brought up like some amazing examples throughout. But uh, when we were talking before the interview, it was really interesting to me about how you discovered through a lot of your research and experience working with kids and youth with ASD, just um, finding out what sensory elements often like really motivated kids to be active. What kind of things did you guys find out or examples?
1: Yeah, I
2: I never thought that this would be something that would draw kids in because usually when I think of sensory, I think of aversions in autism, right? right? So I think of sweat, being overly sweaty. I've been told by some kids on the spectrum is like no i ain't doing it i'm sweaty i'm smelly don't like it and or there's other people who are sweaty and smelly around me and i don't want to touch them i don't want to be around them and so that to me was fascinating i was like i've never thought of that like why would that be an aversion but i get it like you don't want to touch someone who's sweaty if you're playing basketball or soccer and if that's your aversion, that that's what it is but on the flip side of that we've also learned the sensory pieces draw people in so one of them was an individual who would go for walks or runs. And he said just the feeling of having his feet hit the pavement was soothing. And that repetitive kind of pounding on his feet and just kind of connecting him to the ground. He said, it like, he literally his words were, it's what grounded me, was mm-hmm. feeling that my feet hitting the ground. And I said, man, like, sometimes these things that we take for granted, um, both either parents or as educators or researchers, because it's like, well, we don't necessarily always understand that experience at the same degree they do um, but to hear that I was like okay well why don't we ever talk about the sensory pieces of activity which we don't talk about it everything's always about health so I always say one way we can engage kids in terms of promotion is to talk about the sensory um, benefits the other one we talked about was the swimming and you know the water going through the hair a third one being just providing a sense of inner peace and calmness um, from the sensory environment. So when the activity is kind of optimally conditioned and everything's working well, some kids talked about just being able to relax and be themselves, where, you know, the heightened anxieties of being in school, of trying to run around all day and get schoolwork done, or even sometimes the process of getting to school is taxing, and that's exhausting for the child. And to be in a sensory environment where they can just breathe and relax, I remember there was one participant in his interview talked about saying that you know it was like taking off the handcuffs at the end of the day like if I, when I was in my zone which was the boxing he's like there was no one else around there it was just me and that's what allowed me to be me and I didn't have all the expectations and the pressures of trying to be someone who I was not and so that was another fascinating piece to see how important that sensory um, piece can be and again like as a way to engage people that we don't often talk about
0: yeah that's so interesting um We've talked about some misconceptions that um, parents or people might have about physical activity in children uh, with uh, ASD. Um, do you find that there are any other like, common misconceptions that parents or people in general have about physical activity in those with ASD that we haven't talked about?
2: Uh, so I think there's a few social ones and there's a few research ones. So my biggest yeah. pet peeve, and there's a few published papers on this, is research that has argued that kids with autism are naturally unmotivated and or are more likely to be sedentary and lazy because of either social components or that they're drawn to the iPad. And, and I get it. There's a potential kind of understanding of why that might be the case. Um, but at the same time, I argue it's I would say it's not nearly as simple to explain that a kid's sedentary because they like the iPad um, or that they're naturally biologically wired to be lazy. It's like, well, no, if you see the kids who are active and are on the spectrum, I mean, they're usually the opposite. They don't want to stop being active. And that sometimes is a problem as well.
0: <laughs> right. Right? Where
2: beco- becoming active becomes almost an obsession. Yeah. And we did have some of those kids who've talked about that, where one child was like, I had to do 100 sit-ups a night so I can fall asleep. Because the sensory soothing piece, but also it can be unhealthy when it kind of hits to that extreme, right? So that's my first myth is trying to bust. You know, I I like to be myth sometimes. And and to bust the myth that kids with autism are naturally lazy or unmotivated, I don't think that's the case. I think the kids who are quote unquote unmotivated don't have the right supports or don't have the right environments under exposure um, to get them to be active. And that also flows into sometimes our misconception of what even is activity. I think we are hyper obsessed in our society with sport. Sport is a great thing. But at the same time, it's not the only way to be active. And so sometimes we complicate it more than we should. And being active includes going out for walks, either individually or being on your own, doing house chores, right? If, you, if Those who, who do the house chores, we know that a full day of that or half a day of that, I mean, that that's pretty taxing, Yeah. right? Raking the leaves, doing something either inside the house or outside of the house, mopping, walking upstairs, making those small adjustments, all count as activity. And again, well, I'm not completely discrediting sport, I think it has a place and it's important for kids on the spectrum to participate in sport if they can and it's our job to try and facilitate that but I don't think we should complicate it more than we should um, and find different ways that we can be active either as a family or individually and sometimes that gets lost in translation where there's a real fixation on okay they got to be in this program and I know some parents have talked about that they're just taxis and they'll pick up their kid from school and take them from one thing, from therapy to another program to another. And by the time they know it's eight o'clock or nine o'clock, and they're just exhausted. It's like, well, your kid's exhausted as well, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's.
0: <laughs> I'm exhausted just listening to it, yeah. Yeah, so it's,
2: it's trying to simplify it as, as much as we can. And, and I think if we can build activity into our days, I mean, we naturally now live in a pretty sedentary environment, but if we can build in walking, either for school, after school, after dinner, Um, cycling is another great activity for those who are able to do that based on resources and and the space that they have even again yoga finding simple things that can be active throughout the day adds up and so there's a misconception that's like the guidelines say 10,000 steps a day it's like well if you don't do 10,000 steps doesn't mean that it's bad that's a guideline but we shouldn't get hung up on the fact that we have to do 150 minutes a week which is the guideline for kids if we break it down you know, for 20-minute segments throughout the day, about an hour a day is the guideline for kids, then they'll hit that rather than saying, well, we have to spend an hour fully committed to this. We know our kids on the spectrum probably won't do an hour fully engaged. Mm-hmm. So breaking that down, taking that guideline, but putting it in a way that it's usable and saying, well, if we do 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes some in the midday, 20 minutes later on, we've hit our, act- our physical activity goal, right? So I think it's just modifying our expectations a little bit and then also making it fit to our lives because the number one reason people won't do activity from what i found in our in our families is just it doesn't fit into the nature of their daily lives and again that's not a knock on families they got a ton of stuff going on but if we can make it a part of their life and if we can find the enjoyment piece if we can provide it a sense of purpose and family and bonding and cohesion that's where we see the kids who are active are doing it as a family rather than just having kind of the one-off kid doing it on their own
0: That's such an important message. Like, just that, the idea of not conflating physical activity with sports or like a special organized activity right Um, we're recording this during the covid pandemic so certainly physical activity is one of those areas that we see definitely being affected by the pandemic restrictions Um, and i can think of even just one kid that i was talking to yesterday we were thinking about his physical activity and he was engaged in curling for a long period of time and would get like about 12 hours a week or so where he was participating in that and so we were thinking like that's not happening this year how else are you getting your physical activity and as it turned out he's decided to walk to and from school this year and that's 45 minutes each way and that's just a natural part of his routine anyway he has to get to school so why not kind of like get the added benefit of the physical activity how have you been finding things in terms of like the pandemic? And the ASD population with physical activity—it's
2: certainly been a challenge, in terms of again, like our everyone's world was turned upside down. But I think for kids on the spectrum, especially, it's been tough. Where we spend so much time on routine and predictability and focus on certain things, and then like that just disappeared. And then the summer came and went, and now kids are supposed to get back into a structure and routine. And so. That's been hard for some kids to get back into that structure and routine of any sort. Um, but in terms of activity, it, it was the same thing where there's a real kind of worry initially given there's still so much unknown with the pandemic. And some families would say like, well, my kid doesn't go outside and I, I can't let them. And to, to that extent, of course, we respect that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, what we tried to do is develop these online physical activity programs, um, what we called Fit Friday
0: and this were, was through the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. It
2: right? was, yeah. yeah. And it was just one of those things where I was like, man, like, what can I do with what I know and the resources that I have to try and help at a time where the world is really needs some, some help, right? Yeah. And, and so we offered online activities, and every single week we did a different thing. So there was one week we did Tai Chi, and I've never done Tai Chi in my life, and here I was pretending that I was an expert in Tai Chi. <laughs> um, and I think sometimes that brings humility to both – the researchers and people who do activity and, and the families where ad- acknowledging that we're not experts. In fact, we learn way more than, than we're giving information most of the time. Mm-hmm. And just being kind of humble about that process was helpful to, to hear from parents to say like, yeah, you don't know everything. No, I don't know everything. I'm learning the same way you are. And so trying to find neat and innovative ways, whether it's the online physical activity components, The workout videos, I know there's that huge push-up challenge that was hitting Instagram and and Facebook. And that might probably not work very well for our kids. But it's finding different supports, whether it's the curling and somehow you can curl at home. Bowling, I had one family ask about, like, how do I get my child to to bowl? And I said, well, one way you can do it is get empty water bottles, fill them up a little bit so they're not fully empty, make it a bit more challenging. Make sure they're sealed because they had a mishap of one of them not being sealed and it caused a bit of a mess. And getting a tennis ball and practicing that way, right? And that might be five minutes of engagement, but that's five more minutes than, than they did the previous day, Absolutely. right? And again, it's not only about fitness. It's finding all those different activities that can engage a child, whether it's for five minutes, for 20 minutes, for an hour. It's just trying to be creative and coming up with certain sort of movements that will provide a difference. Because we know it's easy to for all of us to sit in front of that TV and not move. Right, and especially when we're really confined to our space, it becomes a challenge. Um, but at the same time, I think now more than ever we have the opportunity to be creative, and we have somewhat of a duty to try and find ways to get our kids to be active because we know kids on the spectrum are struggling, and generally they're probably struggling to begin with. As at least the youth that I've been seeing throughout the pandemic, they were having challenges to begin with, and the pandemic has really exacerbated that. Mm-hmm. Um, but For the kids who came to our programs, they talked about, you know, like this is the one thing I look forward to all week. This is the one hour I had that I could hang out and talk to people. Mm. And, you know, we had an hour session, but we would do 20 minutes of of activity, kind of a 10-minute warm-up and a cool-down, so that's half an hour. And then we spent about 15 to 20 minutes just having them socialize and having a place to engage. And even if it was once a week, that was something that they valued. And when we took a break over the summer, the overarching – kind of feedback was well hello you we need to bring this back <laughs> um, and, and that is our goal and our goal was to i mean when we were doing so well we had an in-person thing planned and was ready to get off the ground and then we are re- where we are right now so we might have to bring the online back but i um, definitely trying to find ways that are creative or novel even new activities you have never done like i said i've never done tai chi we did it in the fit friday just as an experiment because i was like well i don't know i've never done this with people with autism and see what happens yeah and it was way, much more successful than I thought it would be. So.
0: Well, I even like the fact, though, that, uh, like, taking into consideration that you, like, are humble and, like, acknowledging that, you know, I'm just trying this out. Like, I'm taking a risk and trying something new. Because you're also modeling that for the kids as well, right? Um, and that speaks to also maybe something for parents to keep in mind, too, to also kind of model that, like, taking, you know, taking challenges like taking risks and trying something new like they don't have to be perfect in doing it especially because those parents are also like in a lot of cases at home with their kids too right so if they're trying to boost that kind of family uh, context of physical activity that might be one way to do it as well
2: absolutely i remember listening to one of my participants saying like well my dad doesn't do it why would i ever do it he was an 18 year old who was i think i don't know if that was the 18 year old piece of him or if this was Kind of his sassy part, but it was just its like, well, I don't blame you. As a family, if that's not valued, and that's okay, mm-hmm. then you're probably not going to be active. But if, let's say you do a family walk, if you can make it outside for 20 minutes after dinner every single day, you know, try and build that into your routine so that everyone does it. If you have 20 minutes away from your phone, I know for all of us and our devices, I mean, it's it's an addiction, right? Yeah. If we have that 20 minutes even just to take a break from that, in any way, whether it's as like I said a walk or some activity that you're doing yoga, be it tai chi, whatever, anything that is just kind of out of the norm and gets the family engaged together, we know from research that families that are active have kids who are active. So again, if we can bring that family unit to be active,
1: mm-hmm.
2: not only does the child benefit, but the parents will benefit as well. And like like you said, I mean, we're all at home most of the time, cooped up. And parents will often say it's like, that was the best thing I did today It was just go out and take a breath
1: mm-hmm.
2: after running around and trying to do a hundred things. It's like sometimes you just need to slow down to actually catch up. And that's counterintuitive, but it, it is very soothing to try and slow down. And if it's activity, then that's bonus.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. So we've been focused so much on um, the idea of like trying to enhance or boost physical activity for those with ASD. But you did mention that you've also seen cases where it's the opposite, where there's kind of like extreme levels of physical activity for various reasons. Do you have any tips for parents or, or professionals who are dealing with those types of situations and how to manage that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's definitely a double-edged sword where you have a kid who wants to be active, but when it becomes an obsession, when it be, delivers something that is more than just the activity component, that's when it becomes worrisome. So the first thing that we always talk about is kind of monitor, monitoring what's happening, right? So in the physical education kinesiology field, we have the FIT principle, right? So F would be kind of frequency, frequency the I would be intensity, T would be t- type, and and then the other T is time, so F-I-T-T. And so when we're following kids who are having what we would say almost on the other extreme version of being active, we want to see how frequently are they doing, how intense is it, how long are they doing it, and what is the type, right? And so based on those four questions, we can try and start to deduce, okay, is it because there's something going on in their life that they're be hyperactive in a way through physical activity? So for the child who's doing you know, the hundred steps before bed, you know, you take that at face value and it's like, well, no, he's obsessed with this activity, but turns out he was struggling with a few mental health things at that time.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Right. And so he was coping in a way that he found soothing. And you put those two pieces together and it's like, yes, it's, it's relatively not great that he's doing hundred steps before bed every single day, but he's also coping. So then which one do you kind of, which battle do you choose? Right. And you know, what ended up happening in that situation? He said, "You know, like you shouldn't have to do this every single day. Let's try and find another mechanism and bring that those hundred setups down from a hundred to slowly touch to do ninety, and then eighty, and then fifty to taper that off, right? The same you, the same way you would taper off. You know, if someone's transitioning medications, the same way we taper off rather than just fully taking them taking it off. Same thing we do in this context. We try and figure out what are the stressors, what is the stimulus, why is this happening, and then we'll try and readjust that behavior. And again, in this context, it was." more than just the behavior it was a stress coping mechanism It was a sensory component. So monitoring, like I said, the frequency, the intensity, the type and how long they're doing the things for is, is one way. The flip side is we don't want to discourage activity, right? So it's mm-hmm. like, okay, we ask a kid to stop and a natural reaction might be well going to stop everything. So again, we want to try and redirect the behavior um, in a way that is supportive, but also not damaging. So if it could be, for example, do you want to try something new? Do you want to take a break? It's like you've done activity for six weeks every single day. Like, you're probably tired. Do you want to take some days off? And sometimes kids on the spectrum might not even realize it. Sometimes they're do- doing it deliberately, and, and they're aware of that. And, of course, that's not to, to you know, undermine every single person on the spectrum. But some kids might not even realize it. And even having that discussion to say, look, being healthy is important. Um, but also at the same time, we don't want you to be on the other extreme where this can become a problem or can become dangerous. So, if there's anything we can suggest is having kind of that discussion early. We know with anything, if you have a discussion earlier, it's usually better than having it later, and then trying to, like I said, redirect um, the behavior and finding out what's going on. And some from a real behavioral standpoint, is tr- find out why is this happening. It's often not happening accidentally, but it's trying to make it a more positive, um, light of that situation.
0: Yeah. It makes me think about a client that I had in particular, a therapy client who was about 10 years old and he got, uh, in a very extreme way into weightlifting. And so he really benefited in a lot of ways from weightlifting. Um, but he set up like some really intense goals for himself. But what was clear was that, um, it was one of the few areas where he actually felt good about himself. Things were going, um, there were problematic in terms of school and socially and stuff like that so the school and other people around him are really um powerful in being able to like Uh, enable him to do certain activities related to weightlifting and talk about it with his peers within the school environment and stuff like that and parents definitely consulted with their pediatrician as well just to make sure that thinking about like intensity and frequency that for a 10 year old body it was something that uh, that was um, realistic and not to his detriment
2: yeah, and consulting with clinicians whenever you can is is obviously your your first point of contact. If there's something problematic or that you're worried about, definitely if you speak to your family practitioner, that would be kind of the best place to start and then trying to figure out um, what that looks like from there. And again, like mo- now in medical school, slowly people are being trained to actually prescribe physical activity as treatment for certain things.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so more physicians are aware of that. And so again, it's not maybe 20 years ago, they'd be like, what are you talking about? But now it's pretty well accepted and so they'll probably be able to help you to try and scale that down or to find a way that we can kind of minimize that problematic behavior. Because again for this boy, it had a double edged sword, right? But it's trying to minimize the extreme end of it to try and redirect that sort of behavior at the end.
0: Yeah. Do you know if there's any research around um we talked about using um, sports and physical activities for, like, all the kind of social-emotional benefits, right, about being around peers and stuff like that. Do you know of, of any research where it's used, um, like, in a therapeutic way to kind of, like, um, teach um, issues around social-emotional processing and communication?
2: So, funny enough, it is included in most behavioral therapies. Mm-hmm. The thing is that we never get that far in the curriculum to actually implement it. Oh, okay. so in most behavioral kind of models of uh, applied behavioral analysis, right, and even just interventions, it's usually one of the last things of, like, the supports. It's, like, usually letter M or, or P or K. Like, it's just so far on the bottom of things, and oftentimes reading and the social communication behaviors come first. And so we never make it to that part, but it's in a lot of curricula, it's actually there. Like, in the Denver model that we use, it's there. We just don't get that far.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, so the research is suggesting that yeah, we could use activity as one way to enhance social communication skills. So if it's playing with a ball and having a goal-oriented movement with the ball, but also having something to do with, you know, following instructions or also being able to execute a task or focusing or sitting, I mean, we can use it as a tool. I don't, I shouldn't say it's the only tool. It's not. Uh, but I think we it mixes the mark if we just completely discredit it. Mm-hmm. The one thing that I'm trying to develop, and this is probably going to take 20 years of work, is a model called adventure-based learning, and it's being slowly used in the outdoor education settings. Um, No one's used it in autism spectrum disorder yet, Um, and my PhD was one of the solutions that I said, it's like, let's think about this way of teaching, and and it really tries to get away from just the fitness obsession of, of physical activity, but to use problem solving and thinking and peer connections and finding ways that engage kids while also developing the social and emotional benefits, right? So if it's for example, you know, you have a hula hoop and you're trying to get over, you know, the bridge because there's a river, well we want to teach kids like how could you use these physical activity patterns using hula hoops to build a bridge and then they can hop from one thing to the other to then go over to the other side. One, they're problem solving thinking, two, they're being active and three, they're doing it in group settings. So if that all works well, I mean, it is a potential model that we could use. Again, it's in, it's very infancy. No one's really talking about it yet. Hopefully we can do something like that here at Holland blurry one day
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, to see <laughs> if it works or not. But, um, definitely, there is a bit of that application of physical activity being therapy. But I think it's also important not to co-opt the two. I think we want to also keep physical activity as the emotional and the social kind of benefits. And rather than just saying we should only be active for therapy. I mean, there's, every therapy has its own benefits and drawbacks. And I think we should also remember that
1: mm-hmm.
2: it's not a be all and end all is what I'm saying. I think we need to recognize that and, and not overpromise and understand that there are other things we have to do, such as speech, such as behavior therapy, such as, you know occupational therapy etc
0: yeah but some exciting ideas about how physical like, activity can be like broadened right in the scope of learning we're recording this uh, during Holland blur views uh, dear everybody campaign which uh, really focuses on trying to get uh, people with disabilities especially children and youth um, more represented in visual media um, do you know of any um, like people with like individuals with ASD who are like really well recognized for like physical activities
2: no, and that's definitely one of the purposes of the campaign, right, is to not just amplify the voices, but to put a name to a face to individuals. And that certainly has been lacking um, in our field specifically. I think when people think of science, they think of people who have autism, They think of actors potentially, they think of people in film and television. That's really taken all the spotlight.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and physical activity certainly have a long way to go. Um, but I don't think it's impossible. I think certain strengths and, and uniqueness that we have, or our individuals I mean it could be something that we should be proud of and something that we definitely need to put more effort to amplify those voices and faces and to say again like this is an identity that shouldn't be discounted just because of the diagnosis that we have
0: yeah yeah so lastly for parents and families who are listening and may have a child or a teen with ASD that they're thinking I really would like to get them more involved with physical activity what kind of tips or suggestions do you have for them
2: all right, so I'll keep it simple because uh, I think, again, we don't want to overcomplicate um, being physically active, right? So the first thing is try and keep the activity itself simple, especially if it's new
1: mm-hmm.
2: or if starting a new routine. If I ask you to run a marathon right away, there's no way you're going to be able to run that marathon without setting you up with those progressions, right? So if it's a new activity, such as going out for a walk with a family, start off small. Start off with a f- maybe five minutes. And then if it's working well, make it 10 minutes. And then try and build it to 15, build it to 20, right? We want to try and progress every single maybe week or so, so that we can try and build on that. And the biggest thing when our kids see success, whether it's physical activity, whether it's in school, I mean, there's no better feeling for us that when we see ourselves successful, you're more likely to do anything, mm-hmm. right? And I always say for our kids, success breeds success. So if they know they're successful, they feel successful, they're more likely to do it again. If we can set them up through progression, whether it's the five minute, the 10 minute, and try and build on that, that would definitely be a way to do that. So try a new activity, work through progressions, have exercise snacks. So the same way we snack throughout the day, think about how can we incorporate activity? So again, it's not doing it all in an hour. It's five minutes here or there, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. And having those snacks throughout the day could be another way to do that. And so people ask me, so what does that look like? It's like, well, after you're done using your iPad, you got to use the washroom. You've got to go to the kitchen, stand up, walk around, go, you know, do a few squats or do a few push-ups or jumping jacks or stretch even right like stretching is such an important physical activity that is always undervalued Mm -hmm. right and so it's like do something after something you've been doing for a while whether it's like a child who's you know in school comes home have them do something even for five minutes in that moment and break it up throughout the day is another that way that we kind of can incorporate that into their day and then the last piece would be again to try and do it as a family because when the family does it together and it works again we see just benefits for everyone right so whether it's trying something new and saying hey like we've never done yoga let's try and find a film on and have some fun and be silly or zumba zumba has been one of those activities that families have kept t- telling me throughout the pandemic has been their number one thing oh, wow. where it's dance it's music and if, i'm sure you know our kids love music and if we find the song that they like they will rock out completely right so again, finding those things that interest um, the family and trying new things that will kind of pique their engagement are certainly tools that they can use.
0: That's great. Great. So we've talked about so much with respect to physical activity. um, And I think uh, for parents and families who are listening, uh, they'll probably feel the same way that I do. I feel almost kind of like energized and like ready to go after talking to you about all these things. Thanks so much for joining us, Patrick.
2: Thank you very much for having me and uh, look forward to hearing how the rest of the podcast goes.
0: Thanks so much. If you've listened to this episode and have comments or ideas that you'd like to share with us regarding future episodes or what you heard today, feel free to email us at asdengage at hollandbloorview.ca.